So, we started this series by looking at how typically we, as Americans particularly, use the beginning of the new year to sort of restart our efforts to better ourselves. We join a gym, we go on a diet, we get our finances in order, we even attempt to learn to speak a new language. But as we've discussed, there's a question that is bigger than, than what those things answer. The question is, what needs to be done not for me, but for the world around me? So it's, so it's an outward-looking question. Because if we really want to become better people, we need to do something to make our world a better place. We need to make our area. We need to make Boca Parkland and Coral Springs and Coconut Creek and Deerfield Beach. You think the developers got a little carried away with all this, huh? Pompano Beach, West Delray Beach, West Boynton Beach, better places. And the question that we saw in the first week of this series, way back at the beginning of the year, as we read in the book of Nehemiah, that, that sort of carried us through this series, was the question, what breaks your heart? If we want to know what God is calling us to do outside of ourselves, we need to be able to answer the question, what breaks our hearts? Now, lots of things trouble us, and lots of things disturb us. And we think lots of things, we see lots of things that make us go, oh no, that's terrible. Somebody needs to do something about that. Or, oh, that stinks. I'd hate to be them. Or, wow, that's just awful. And then we kind of just go on with our day. Like, what size coffee do you want? We don't do anything about it. But every so often, we see something that we just can't unsee. We see something that that sticks in our mind, like a splinter driving us mad. Credit to Morpheus for that one. We see something that we just can't shake. And we don't know why it bothers us, but it compels us to look into it, to dig a little deeper, to to research it, and to obsess over it. We we simply can't get it out of our hearts. And when that happens, that's how you'll know when you're on the way to discovering what breaks your heart. And as we talked about last week, asking that question is dangerous. Because once we answer that question... And once we decide to do something about it, it's going to cost us. It's going to require something of us. It's going to require some time. It's going to require perhaps some money. It's going to require some missed opportunity. If you're doing one thing, you can't do the other thing. Once we figure out what breaks our hearts and step out into the unknown, it's going to cost us. And that's not an easy realization. And it isn't easy because by nature, we don't want to give up anything. By by nature, we're not life giver-uppers. By nature, we're life preservers. And it was into this contradiction that Jesus stepped. And he taught us that, and this is, I think I showed you this quote from, from Andy Stanley. Andy says, whoever devotes themselves to themselves will have nothing but themselves to show for themselves. Pretty good, right? We don't want to get to the end of our lives having maintained the perfect weight, the perfect schedule, and the perfect finances, but 
having never done anything else. Jesus said that that kind of life is a total loss. In Jesus' economy, if you devote yourself to more than yourself, you will have more than yourself to show for yourself. Jesus didn't say that, but he could have said that because it's along the lines with what he taught. Now, this kind of life is the kind of life worth living. And when we figure out the thing that at the end of our lives, we'd love for people to line up and thank us for doing, we'll be on our way to discovering what breaks our hearts. I was um, mentored, as a lot of you guys know, by, by David Nicholas, Pastor David Nicholas. And when he passed away a few years ago, was at his funeral, and a dozen people at least got up on stage one after another after another and remembered him because what broke his heart was the fact that nobody understood the gospel. And so many people came up on stage one after another after another and said, I am a believer today because David Nicholas shared the gospel with me. That broke his heart. And at his funeral, that's what everybody talked about. That's the kind of life that's worth living. That's the kind of thing that led me to Jesus. I grew up in, let's call it a foreign place, in a place far, far away from from this place, from this church place. And as I've told you before, not only didn't I grow up in the church, growing up, I didn't even really know what the church was. I mean, I knew there were places around town that were called churches. They had a sign outside. That's how I knew. But beyond having a vague notion that a church was a place where people from another religion went one day a week, it seemed, I had no clue what went on inside of those places. And as for the word Jesus, I had mostly heard it used as an exclamation when somebody was really upset about something. I didn't know anything at all about Jesus himself other than the basic fact that he was a person who lived a long time ago. And and that's it. I, I really mean it. That's all I knew. But one day when I was nearing the end of my 20s, I was at the end of my 20s, a friend shared that gospel with me, and he told me truths about myself that I'd never, ever, ever even considered. He told me that I wasn't perfect, but I was really not only just not perfect, but I was pretty messed up. And he told me that I was selfish, and he told me that I was self-seeking, and he told me that I was self-absorbed. Clearly, he wanted to be friends with me, and so he was telling me all these things. He told me I wasn't living the best life that I could live and that I needed somebody to save me. And then he told me all about a different way, the way of following Jesus. He told me how if I committed to change my ways, to turn from the way I was going and to turn to the way Jesus would lead me, I would live an abundant life, a life of meaning and purpose and significance and a life of eternity with God. So even though I didn't know anything about Jesus... I did know that I was capable of committing to something and taking action. So I committed my life to Jesus. But I had a lot to learn. So I immediately began reading the Bible and listening to every Bible teaching I could get my hands on. And before long, I understood the incredibly attractive and compelling invitation that Jesus made to everyone who would commit their lives to him. Jesus was was all about if you'll commit your life to God and love others and tell people about the things that I do in your life and teach other people to do the same, if you'll commit your life to being lived for me, I'll give you the gifts of eternity 
and abundance and meaning and purpose. I'll give you a life better than any life that you could ever give yourself. So, I mean, how could I resist? That's an irresistible invitation. So I jumped in with both feet. And after I told my friend, hey, guess what? I did it. I committed my life to Jesus. He said, well, you need to find a church. So I did. But in church, I also discovered something else. I wasn't seeing modeled around me all of the things that Jesus had instructed his followers to be about. Many, not all, but many of the church people I was meeting seemed to be unaware of or unimpressed by Jesus' call to action. But if you're a follower of Jesus, this is something you just can't ignore. It doesn't go with being a follower of Jesus to not understand the action. And even though we already know this on some level, can we talk? We believers have a tendency, if we're not careful, to substitute devotion for action. We have a tendency to substitute the vertical for the horizontal. We have a tendency to be so content with the idea that God is cool with us because we believe all the right things that we don't do anything more. When we open up the New Testament, we have to ask ourselves, if we're doing that, are we really following Jesus? And as we ask ourselves that question, our contentedness in that model begins to fade away. So as it turns out, our personal beliefs and our personal devotion are just a part of the story. And don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that our salvation hinges upon anything we do, okay? Our salvation is evidenced and identified, though, by the way that we live our lives differently after we come to Jesus. In fact, that's what James said. And that's what Jesus taught. And sadly, it seems that we believers are still way more content with making a point than we are with making a difference. Often, we as believers, we're really, really good at making a point, aren't we? I know so many people have their apologetics, their defense of the faith, so tightly worked down, they can respond to anything. Anything. They're really good at shaking their fingers at others. We're really good at shaking our fingers at the screen, the TV screen or the computer screen. We're good at shaking our fingers at the culture. We're good at shaking our fingers at all the things that are wrong with our world. We're really good at making point after point after point. But as we're about to discover, if all we do is make points without making a difference, we're not good at following Jesus. With that, I want to welcome you to our final installment of our New Year's series, Let's Do Something About It. Now, it's a three-part series, and in this part, three-part series, we're building upon the lessons from the Old Testament story of Nehemiah that we introduced at the beginning of this series And therein, we found the idea of the thing that breaks our heart, the thing that compels us to do something about it. And last week, continuing our quest, we talked about identifying the thing or the things that we'd be willing to sacrifice in order to address our heartbreak. Now, if you missed this message or any of them, you're always welcome to go to YouTube, Hammock Street Church on YouTube or hammockstreetchurch.com and listen to our Sermon again, you can download our podcasts on iTunes. You can check out our app, lots of places to listen to it. Well, today, we're going to wrap up this series by seeing that if we're really committed 
followers of Jesus, and we want to tackle the thing that breaks our hearts, and we're willing to make some sacrifices in order to succeed, we're going to need to see more motion in our devotion. What does that mean? Let's pray, and then we'll find out. Father God, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Thank you for our time together. Thank you for this community you're building here at Hammock Street. Every week that goes by, we see lives changed. We see people come and join. We see your presence. God, open our hearts and minds today as we study your word, as we talk about the things that you've called us to be about. God, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it's interesting how today's topic dovetails with a topic that comes up a lot in the New Testament. And that topic is the topic of faith and works. And if you haven't been around the church long enough to be totally familiar with those terms, they're basically the words used to address the question, for the true follower of Jesus, which is more important, what you believe or what you do? Does anyone want to answer that question? Which is more important, what you believe or what you do? The answer, yes. That's the answer. Yes. To the faithful follower of Jesus, both what you believe and what you do matter. Both of those things are important. It's it's much like in the area of personal wellness. We're understanding how to improve one's health and fitness Read all the books, watch all the blog, vlogs, check all the watch it all. That's important to understand how, but you have to accompany it with doing those things to bring about a change. So understanding the things God has taught us is very, very important, but implementing those principles in our lives are necessary to bring about a change. A change not only of ourselves, but also the world around us. So that's why both our devotion and our motion are important. Now, up until today, our series has been applicable to everybody, whether you're a believer, not a believer, it doesn't really matter. Every life will be better when people take action to remedy the thing that breaks their heart. But today, as we wrap up this series, I'm really going to be directing my comments to the believers among us. It doesn't mean that if you're not a believer, you can get up and leave. Well, you can, but you shouldn't. Because if you're not there, I promise you'll find something useful in the message. You actually might like the message better because I'm going to say things to the believers that are going to make the believers uncomfortable. And if you're not a believer, you're going to go, yep, not my problem. It might even make you happy Because I might say some things to the Jesus people that you've wanted to say for a long time, but you don't want to be rude. I don't mind. But for the believers among us, today's message is going to challenge you. And today's message is going to challenge the very common struggle of Jesus' people who lean towards substituting devotion, the, the vertical, our connection with God, for the horizontal, the action, our connection with one another, with God's beloved. See, far too often, if we're not careful, people who call themselves Christians can become complacent with simply believing all the right things. Far too often, Christians fall into the trap of thinking that by sheer virtue of my proper beliefs alone, I'm living the fullest life that God has in store for me. But that is not the whole picture. When we actually read the Bible and ask ourselves the question, am I following Jesus? We're going to see that simply knowing stuff isn't the whole story. 
and don't write me letters before anybody becomes upset with me. I'm not talking about how to become a Christian. I'm talking about how the life of a believer should look. I'm talking about how the life of a believer should present itself once one has become a follower of Jesus. I'm talking about what it would look like if a person wanted to do more than just be a member of the Christian club. Because if you want to live the Christian life, personal devotion isn't all there is. And believing isn't the whole picture. Now, that's what James said. You know who James was, remember? James was Jesus' little brother. What would your big brother have to do to convince you that he was the savior of the world? Could you imagine? You have a big brother. Think about it. When James' big brother rose from the dead, I think that was it. Kind of sold it. And here's what James said in James chapter 2, verse 17. He said this. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is split churches. This is split denominations. This is an incredible thought. But think about it. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Jesus actually put it this way in Matthew chapter 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine, this is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. When we read these things, we can begin to see the notion that if all we do is know stuff, and then shake our fingers at our computer, or shake our fingers at our culture, or shake our fingers at our politicians, even though we might be making a point, We won't be making a difference, and that doesn't make us good Christians. All right, so what makes us a good Christian? Well, let's have a look. We can find our answer in one of the most familiar passages in the New Testament. If you were married in a Christian ceremony, there it is, where is it? If you were married in a Christian ceremony, you've heard this passage before. It was written by the Apostle Paul. One One of the letters that he wrote to the community of believers in the Greek city of Corinth. Recall that the Apostle Paul, he was the apostle used by God to spread the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles throughout the ancient world. Paul was one of those hybrid individuals. He was born a Hebrew of Hebrews, born into a Jewish family. He understood the Jewish culture, but he was also born inside of the Roman Empire, inside of that Hellenistic, that Greek culture. So he was sort of, he could play for both teams, you understand. He understood. He was kind of the hybrid guy. And in Paul's first letter to the Corinthian community, the letter we know of as 1 Corinthians, echoing the words of Jesus and echoing the words of James, Paul told the faithful that it's not enough to simply believe. You've got to do something with what you believe. His comments were aimed at those people who thought that God was totally impressed with a devotion that didn't include an emotion. That God was impressed with the things that they knew, but they never did anything about. And Paul told them, in essence, put some motion into your devotion. Now, let's read our passages, then we'll go back and take a look at them. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. I hope this looks familiar to some of you. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. 
If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Those are our verses for today. Let's break them down. We'll go back to verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So let's start off here. Paul says, if I. I want to address this first because it appears at first blush that Paul is only talking about himself. He said, I, right? If I. That's talking about himself. But he was actually talking about all believers. He was actually talking about all of us who are believers here. As anyone who's had to have a tough conversation with somebody already knows, that's one of the ways you make the conversation easier. That's one of the ways you soften the blow of hearing something difficult about yourself or about myself. When the person is telling you something, they include themselves in the critique. Did you see how I just did that a minute ago? Yourself, myself, yeah, yeah. So to keep things understandable as we go through these verses, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to aim Paul's lessons at all of us as well, all right? So on to the passage. If you speak, okay, so remember, we're changing it. Paul said if I, but we're saying he was really talking to us. So if you speak in the tongues of men. Now, the word tongues here in the Greek refers to actual languages here. If you speak in the languages of men and angels, but have not love, you're nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. So here to set up his point, Paul's saying this. Paul's saying, even if I had this supernatural ability to speak in many languages so that people from all over the world could understand me, and my ability was a special gift from God himself. But by the way, before we go on, I want you to see something. This is another use of hyperbole in the New Testament. We talk about this all the time. Paul did not have this ability. Paul did not have the ability to speak all these foreign languages in the tongues of men. That's why it's hyperbole. Okay? He's saying, if I did, if I had it. He's setting up a larger point. That's why he keeps on going, and he makes this illustration even more extreme. He says, even if I could speak in the tongues of angels, even if I could speak angel language, and if you're thinking, you go, wait a minute, what's an angel language? What the heck is angel language? And the answer is, I have no idea what angel language is. Neither do you, neither does anybody. We don't know what angel language is. I just told you, this is hyperbole, okay? Paul was making a point. Paul was saying, hypothetically, even if I was so connected to God, so in tune with God, that I could almost magically speak foreign languages, even the language of of supernatural creatures like angels, even if I could do something like that, something that no one in the world can do, even if I could do that, but I didn't have love. See, love here is our action word. It's our motion word. The Greek word for love we've talked about before is the word agape. Agape, I hope you will recall, is that others-centered love, the form of love that requires action, the form of love that requires doing. Even if I could do all that stuff and I don't have the love that requires action, if I don't do something about loving other people, I am just making a useless and quite frankly irritating noise like a gong. Anybody old enough to remember the gong show? I know, all my contemporaries out there. Love you guys, hearing? That gong is such a loud, annoying noise, isn't it? Think about it. And we think, wait a second, Paul, how can you say that? 
To, to which Paul would answer, because if I'm not focused on loving others, then I am all about myself. So we go, hang on, Paul. Are you saying it's not important to be devoted to God? Paul's saying, no. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that it's important to not stop there. It's important to not simply focus on the vertical love of God and ignore the horizontal love of God's people. Because if you stop at only caring about God, you are just making a lot of noise. Ouch. Like, that hurts, right? Paul wasn't done. He was just getting warmed up. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. So he's continuing on this time. He addresses the people who'd been around religion. People, let's say, who'd been in church for their whole lives. Paul addressed the people who perhaps memorized tons of scripture. Maybe they graduated from Awana. And people who knew their Bible. They're really good at their sword drills. They could find those verses quick. And people who had a verse for every situation. There was a hockey player who used to play for the Panthers. I won't tell you his name. He's retired many years. And the first time I met with him, we sat down for lunch. And I'm not kidding you when I tell you every sentence that came out of his mouth was followed by chapter and verse. Wow, this guy knows his Bible. It was intimidating. Even for people who have a verse for every situation, maybe even for people who have an advanced degree in theology, like me, even if you understand all the stuff in the Bible, even if you have all the answers, even if you're the most knowledgeable person in the room, wait a minute, was Paul about to say that that stuff wasn't important? No. Paul would say, I'm not saying it's not important. I'm saying that if you stop there, then even that stuff is still all about you. Even if you're one of those people, if you don't have love, others-centered, servant-oriented love, what are you doing? Paul says you're doing nothing. You may be a Bible wizard. You may be the best prayer in church. Anybody ever been intimidated by somebody else's prayers? Yeah, a lot of heads nodding here. Me too, by the way. I'm not a terrific prayer. I've met so many people who just pray beautiful, beautiful prayers. I'm like, ooh, I'll never be able to do that. Even if you're the most wonderful prayer, even if you're the most on-fire, inspirational person in the world, if you don't have love, Paul says, you are nothing. You are doing nobody any good. Paul was telling the believers that if they were simply content and making their points without making a difference, God was not impressed with them. That's another one. Ouch. That kind of stings. I'm working so hard for you, God. What? Paul wasn't done. He'd go even further in the next verse. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So he starts off, even if I give away all of my possessions, And we might be tempted on this one to think, yeah, that's not nothing, Paul. I mean, come on, that's not nothing. Giving away all our stuff would be a pretty big deal. That would impress the man upstairs, wouldn't it? And if I agreed to let them burn my body to show them just how devoted I am. And we go, Paul, that's not nothing. That's a big thing. That'll let God know just how sincere I am, right? I mean, if I do these things, God will surely favor me over others, won't he? Right? Wrong. That 
would still be all about you. Giving away everything would be a grand gesture for you. By the way, Paul was not talking here about giving to the church, about tithing, about supporting God's work. Paul's talking about giving a gift to bring attention to oneself. Remember, attitude, desire, the heart has everything to do with this. Even allowing yourself to be immolated, to be engulfed in flames, to prove your faithfulness would still be all about you. Paul says, no, even if you were able to do all that, if you didn't have that agape love, to God, your actions would amount to nothing. In other words, even if you were the most generous person in history, even if you were willing to be reduced to a pile of ashes to show your devotion to God, if you didn't love, all of that would amount to nothing. Paul is saying here that no matter what you know, no matter how well you journal, no matter what you say, no matter how you pray, if you're not loving on, if you're not helping out other people, if your devotion isn't resulting in motion, then you are nothing and you gain nothing and your faith is all about you. I told you this was going to be harsh. Is there a lesson here? Yes. If we want to address the thing that breaks our heart, it's going to require our true devotion to God. And to be truly devoted to God, we need to understand that devotion to God isn't just having good morals. And devotion to God isn't simply about making it through the day without sinning, as if any of us could do that. And devotion to God isn't merely not. It isn't merely not cursing as much. It isn't merely about not getting drunk It isn't merely about not yelling or not reading or not watching something or whatever. Devotion to God isn't only refraining from doing bad things. It's different. Also, devotion to God isn't about reading your Bible every day. It's a good thing to do, but that's not all your devotion's about. It's not about remembering to pray. That too, good thing. Still not what it's all about. It's not about going to church, which is a very good thing. And I'm glad you're here. It's not about using the right words, though. It's not about watching the right shows. It's not about listening to the right music. Now, it's not to say, please understand, it's not to say that those things aren't important. They are important. And they're a good start. And they're good practices. But those are the basics. But devotion to God is something more. If those things are all you do, if all you do is make a better you, if all you do goes no further than you, if those things are all that we think our faith in Jesus is about, then we run the risk of becoming nothing more than really irritating versions of ourselves. The people around you don't want you to do that. We shouldn't want to do that. If we do that, we're going to turn off the very people we'd like to reach. When our faith in God goes no further than our attempts to be godly, we're not being Jesus' witnesses. We're just telling the world that we think we're better because we know more, because we know better. But through Paul's words today, we've seen something more. God wants us to not lose sight of his plan. God wants us to not lose sight of his promises. God wants us to not lose sight of the life to which he has called us. The only way that we can truly experience the abundant life that God has set before us is to put our devotion in motion. And I know that's not easy. It's simple. It's very straightforward, but it's not easy. But if we can get this... If we can take this lesson from Paul and internalize this lesson, then we'll be in a position to tackle the thing that breaks our heart. And in the process, we'll be in the position to show the world exactly who Jesus is and how his love will make their lives abundant as well. 
at the core of the gospel is not the fact that God believed something. At the core of the gospel is the fact that God did something. And your devotion to God and my devotion to God will remain incomplete and ineffective until we put motion in our devotion. Our devotion to God is authenticated by our love for others. Hammock Street, we can do this. If we can make this a habit, if we can make this our thing, imagine, just imagine how God would work in us and through us right here to change our lives and to change the lives of everyone around us in our whole area for Jesus. Do you agree with that? Then let's say together, amen. And amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for these hard words, but true words. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to serve you, though we don't deserve it. To be your hands and feet, to be your witnesses here, even though we're broken, even though we're flawed. But God, we know we're doing it because we're loved by you. And you've called us. So God, as we head from here today, throughout this week, help us to put motion in our devotion. We thank you, God. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.